he's sort of uh, giving it lots of extra gas, and then he's he's pulling back on the uh, the throttle and going forward, and it's sort of like you're lurching and you're twisting, and and you finally land, and everyone in the plane applauds. <laughs> and that's when Doug Sigelko turned towards me and he said, "Did I tell you that this is one of the most dangerous airports in the world to land on?" <laughs> and he said, "I thought I'd tell you before, but then I thought I may as well wait till after." And uh, I mean, that makes sense because there might not have been an after. So uh, anyhow, we had an incredible time in Honduras. I'm wearing this uh, Honduras jersey. Uh, the host pastor that we were with in Tegucigalpa, he, he bought me this jersey and I told him I'd wear it in church on Sunday to honor him. And there was a whole network of pastors that were coming together uh, from uh, all sorts of Central American countries, from Guatemala and El Salvador and Honduras. And uh, some of the ones from Costa Rica and Nicaragua weren't able to make it. You, you might have noticed there was a lot of rioting in Nicaragua right now, so, um, and other factors came into, into me. But there was quite a few who came together. And um, it's fun traveling with Doug Sigelko because, again, yeah, he doesn't tell you a lot in advance. Uh, not just the flights. Uh, sometimes I remember meeting with him just a few days or about a week or so before we were going to go and saying, okay, Doug, exactly what were you doing down there? Well, there's a pastor's conference. Yeah, and so how can we help that? Well, you're doing it. Oh, oh we're doing it? says, yeah, you're the speakers for the pastor's conference that's happening in a week. And I was, oh my goodness. Anyhow, that's how it happens in Central America. Just, just uh, surprise, surprise, surprise. You're doing this, you're doing that. You just never know what you're going to be doing next. But we had an incredible time there. Um, uh, pastor Doug is a bit of a, um, a folk hero down there. And uh, so everybody has high regard for Pastor Douglas, as they say his name. And uh, he, it was amazing to see him in, because he, he's been, it's funny, we have this great uh, joke that we always play on people at this church. If you come and you hear Pastor Doug speak, you often, if it's your first time here, you'll say, well, is that the senior pastor? That's what people always ask us. Is that the senior pastor? They see him, he's good, looking good with his beard, and he's, he's, such a, he's well, so well-spoken. People say, is that your senior pastor? And then our response is always, nah, that's just the janitor. He had something he wanted to get off his chest. <laughs> So we, we sort of hide the fact that he has about 40 years of incredible ministry behind him. And in Central America, he's a bit of a troubleshooter they call in when they, they need somebody. So it's great to walk along with him. Um, I think we, he spoke twice, translated twice. Chris cre- preached three times. He was the first one to preach uh, through a translator in Central America. I was glad he went first so I could make notes on uh, how to do this thing. And then uh, I got to speak a number of times, I think four times in the, in the course of um, three days. So that was pretty exciting stuff. And uh, if you've been tracking with us for a while, you'll know a few things um, that we have in the past when we've been renovating in our own building or we're like a few years ago, well, 10 years ago at least, we were fixing the roof on our church. And uh, the pastor, lead pastor at the time, Pastor Allen, and some of the other leaders, they were talking about it, and they just said, let's not just fix our building, let's bless someone else somewhere else. And uh, so that led to uh, teams coming from Moose Jaw to Guatemala and putting roofs on, the ch- on a couple churches down there. And, uh, and we actually had, uh, from one of those churches, the Hutiapa Church in, in Guatemala, they actually came to the conference with a whole van load of uh, leaders, and uh, it was so exciting to sort of meet the people that were being that 
were holding their services now under that roof that was built by people from Hillcrest. And uh, you also know that uh, there's a Musha medical team that's gone out and does some incredible work in Guatemala as well. And uh, we sent out uh, a few from our congregation. Uh, um, I, I, won't, I know the Wilsons went and there's maybe some others, but I'm just drawing a blank right now. But I have a funny feeling we'll be doing more in Central America. I have a funny feeling we'll be doing more, whether that's fundraising to help some of those churches down there. Uh, maybe it's going to be uh, sending construction teams again, um, maybe ministry teams like we did this time. Um, again, I think there's going to be more that we're going to do. it. So I'm just encouraging you to practice your Spanish. Watch Dora the Explorer as much as you can. <laughs> and, uh, and I think God's got more for us down there. Well, it's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Um, how many of you have already had an opportunity to honor your mother this morning? Okay. Wow, that's awesome. And now some of you still are going to do that. I realize that. But uh, really... It's a, it's a holiday where that's the core of it. That's the core. It was, no, no, no. Let me say that differently. It's a holiday with mixed messages. But the core of being a follower of Jesus who takes God's word seriously is that we're called to honor our fathers and our mothers. And, and uh, so Mother's Day should just be part of a continuum of honoring our mothers. And uh, so um, that, that's the essence. And, you know, Mother's Day is a whole different experience for all of us. We have so many different stories. Some of us have our mothers with us still. Some of us don't. Um, Some of us have some pains in the past because of our moms. Some of us, it's mostly just delight. You know, it's just all over the map. It's all over the map, the experiences we have. But we can all share that one common command, the call to honor our mothers, right? And so I want to encourage you today to, um, if you you have a opportunity to actually interact with your your mom then honor her and if you don't have that opportunity then the the second thing I would encourage you to do is to thank God for your mother thank God for your mother actually give God uh, praise and credit and thank him for your mother and if that's difficult I always encourage people start with the fact that she gave you life you can build from there maybe there's a lot more than that but even if that's all there is start with that and uh, make this a grateful day Make it a day of gratitude and thank the Lord uh, uh, for that. And that's just my encouragement to you on Mother's Day is just to take that command, honor your mother, and to put it into practice either through directly honoring your mother or uh, uh, you can go to the Lord and just say, thank you, Lord, that I had a mother and that she gave me life. And and if there's more, uh, make it a grateful day. All right. We're still in the middle of a series uh, out of the book of James. That's what this apprentice part is about. We're talking about what does it look like to be an apprentice of Jesus, uh, learning to be like him. If we're the, uh, the ones being mentored, what, is it, or what does it look like to learn from the master? And so today we're, we're in James chapter 4. And uh, I, I sort of hesitated when I realized it was Mother's Day and the book of James because everything James writes is like it's... Um, it's what well, we call him gut punch James because everything he writes is sort of like right to the point. There's no sort of like making it softer or nicer like we'd like to do on Mother's Day. It's just like bam. It's, he's right in your face with some stuff. And so I thought, but you know, I, I was, as I was reading this, I thought, you know, there's some applicable things that uh, it's not specifically about Mother's Day, but it's, there's some applicable things to all of our lives and our relationships in uh, James chapter 4. So let me begin to read at verse 1. 
Verse 1 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? How's that for a Mother's Day beginning? <laughs> what causes fights and quarrels among you? And if you're a mom, you probably wonder that about your family. What causes all these fights and quarrels among them? And, and we try to trace it back, don't we? Like when we're in a fight or a quarrel. And we might try to trace it back. We say, boy, how did that get out of control? How did that happen? How did we get here? How did it begin? Oh, it began, he, he said, and, and she said, and then I did, and, and then there was that moment, and, and, then there was, and then it sort of took a turn this way, and we can maybe try to trace it back. But the Bible actually tells us a really great starting point for understanding where fights and quarrels come from, and that's in the next line. It says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The root of your quarrels and your fights come from the desires that battle within you. You say, what, my, my desires are, are at war? There's a battle on the inside? Well, we have, sometimes we do have very conflicting desires. I want to do this, but yet I want to do that. And we find ourselves not uh, in a struggle that way. But often I think the conflict or the battle that we have with our desires is that we desire stuff we can't get. We desire stuff we can't get, and that creates an internal uh, battle. Now, desires themselves are not bad. Desires themselves are not bad. In fact, a, lo a lot of us have very good desires, very, very good desires. But desires can become bad, and I want to talk, what I'm going to share now is probably I've learned almost everything in this next section from Brian Heaney. How many of you have learned about um, good desires and blocked lousy goals from Brian Heaney. You put up your hand if you've ever heard that. Okay, lots of you across the room. We're so indebted to Brian for bringing this teaching into my life. It's been so helpful to me, and I want to share it, and if I do it badly, that's my fault, and if it sounds smart, then that's because I learned it from Brian, right? But the root of our quarrels comes from our desires, and our desires aren't bad, but some desires goes from, go from things that would be nice if I had. It would be nice to have that. Two, I must have that. And there's a huge difference. When you say, man, I'd really like this. But, you know, if I don't get that, I'm going to be okay. That's a big difference from I must have this. If I don't have this, I'm not going to be okay. So one is a desire that's sort of held with an open hand. It's like, well, you know, if I get this into my life, I would like it. It would be nice. And I do desire it. I want it. But I'm okay if I don't get it. On the other hand, it's the closed fist. It's like grasping. I need, I need, I need. And if I don't get it, I'm not going to be okay. Because there's something inside of me that tells me I'm not okay. Unless I get that. And those desires are very different. And Brian's... Uh, helpful thing was he's saying that what we do is we take a desire that could be a good desire and we turn it into a goal. A goal that we must have. And you can tell when a goal is a lousy goal when it's one you can't achieve on your own. If you can't do it on your own, you can't achieve it. And I'll, give you, I'll give you a Mother's Day example. Let's say a mom was to say, all I want for Mother's Day, what do you want for Mother's Day, mom? All I want for Mother's Day is for everyone to be together and to get along. Is that a good desire? Yeah, that is a good desire. That's an awesome.
awesome desire. That's a 10 out of 10 good desire. Is it a goal that someone else can block? It's a goal that everyone can block. All I want is for everyone to be together. Well, what if someone doesn't show up? One person could block your goal. All I want is for everyone to get along. What if one person decides not to get along? One person can block your goal. So it's a great desire. It's a great thing to want and to, and, and to desire on Mother's Day. But if you need it, it makes a terrible goal. It makes a lousy goal because it can be blocked like that. And you can't stop it. You can't control it. You can't manipulate your way towards it. All it takes is one unwilling person to block your goal. So I'd say it's a bad goal, a lousy goal. Good desire, but a lousy goal. So let's, well, let me say one more thing about that. I said that a healthy desire is more open-handed. You say, this is what I'd like. If I don't get it, I'll still be okay. I might be disappointed. That could be, you know, I might be a little sad or a little bit disappointed. But I won't be devastated because my life doesn't depend on it. Okay? So I just want to clarify that. And our anger becomes an indicator. Our anger becomes an indicator of the desires that are inside of us. So you can sort of, this is the amazing thing about this teaching. When I learned it, was it, it helped me to sort of um, spin backwards from my fights. So if I'm in a fight or if I'm in a quarrel or some sort of dispute and there's some animosity in it, then I can sort of look myself in the mirror and say, why am I so angry? There must be some goal that's being blocked by the other person. What is it that I need? What is the emptiness inside of me that I'm trying to fill by clutching so tightly to this goal? And what is the goal? And so that's been really helpful to me. So I've been, okay, I must have a blocked, lousy goal because I'm really angry. I'm really upset by my interaction with this person. I must have wanted something so desperately from them that when I couldn't get it, I turned angry and, and suddenly this rage comes upon me and I'm like, oh. So it helps us to back up and, and diagnose, self-diagnose. It's wonderful. Doesn't sound wonderful, does it? But it is. It's helpful. Why do I feel that I need that so much? And that takes us to verse 2. It says, you desire but you do not have. That's our experience. I desire but I can't have. So you kill. Whoa. That's not Mother's Day stuff. You kill. Okay, that's how far it can get. That's how far it can get. And that actually does, in our world, this happens. People desire something. They must have it. They can't have it. Someone's blocking them. And anger rears up. And violence can become the result. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. I want that, I want that, I want that. I can't get it. And so we're angry. You do not have because you do not ask God. Wow. 
You do not have because you do not ask God. I mean, this is the TSN turning point of this text. You do not have because you do not ask God. This is the key. So we've been going to other people, and we've been saying, I want to get from you what my heart or soul or my insides needs. And then this verse tells us, you've been going to the wrong address. You've been looking for love in all the wrong places when it was available somewhere else. You don't have what you're looking for because you didn't ask God. So the question is this, are we trusting God's goodness and asking him for what we need? Or are we doing whatever it takes to get what we think will make us happy through any other means? In uh, Jeremiah 2, 12 to 13. Do you want to pull that verse up there? I'll just, I'll just read it to you here. Jeremiah 2, uh, 12 and 13. It's a, this is an interesting verse. I think this sort of spells out a little bit of the, the picture of what we've got going on. It says, be appalled at this. This is shocking. You heavens. So it's like, it's like God speaking to creation. And shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. What, what's this thing that we're going to be appalled about? Go on. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So, again, the Old Testament, and this is from the Old Testament, the prophets in the Old Testament, they, they use this, this language of uh, being in relationship with God, and they, almost, they, they use it almost like husband and wife language. In fact, that language is used quite a bit. But he's saying there's two sins that... that God's people have committed. One is that they, they've forsaken him. They, say, they stopped going to God for life, for love, acceptance, significance, belonging, all those things. They've stopped going to God for that, and they've started to try to create some other way to get what they were meant to get in relationship with God. So instead of going to God, who's a never-ending spring of living water that never runs dry, they create a they, they, they create some sort of water containment vessel, a cistern that's got a hole in it and always runs dry. They're trying to find in some other location, in some other thing, in some other activity, in some other person what they were meant to find in God. And this is, and this is really, it tells us about the nature of evil in our lives. It tells us a little bit about, it's sort of, this is sort of unmasking how anger and evil and all these things work. Evil is turning away from God as the fountain of all satisfying living water and trying to dig it out of the world around us. And it, it, when we do this, quarreling and fighting results. We wrong other people because God and his ways are not our delight. We don't go to the source we were made for. You know that? You were made to have a relationship with God. You were created to have a relationship with God. And sometimes when I get talking about, you know, why should a person uh, live in relationship to God, I just say, well, one of the simplest answers would be, you're made for it. You're made for it. That's what the Creator created you for, was to know Him. It's just one of the simplest answers. There's lots of other good answers. But when we don't have that, we go looking for something that will fill the God-shaped hole inside of us. And some of those things, well, I would say all of those things, don't satisfy. 
and, uh, and lead us down a bad path. See, if I don't get from God what I need, I'll try to get it from you. You say, oh, you don't know me. Well, I might even try to get it to you specifically if I don't know you, but I'll try to get it from the people around me, right? I'll try to get from somebody else what I should have got from God. We do a fun exercise. I, I think it's a fun exercise. Uh, maybe not everyone does. When we do premarital, premarital counseling. So couples are going to get married and they say, hey, pastor, we want to uh, do um, some time where we just sort of uh, intentionally work on uh, strengthening our relationship in anticipation of marriage. And uh, awesome. It's a wonderful thing. I don't do as much of this anymore. Kurt and Chris are doing more of it nowadays. Um, I'm doing probably more stuff with marriages, but whatever. Uh, but I, I really love this one exercise. The one exercise that, I mean, there's lots of exercises, but my, one of my favorite ones. What I do is I say, I want you to make a list of all the expectations you would have for marriage. I give them a sheet with, you know, 20, 30 blanks on it. And I just say, fill it up if you want. Use the backside if you want. Write as many as you want. All the expectations you'll have for when you get married. And it could be small things or big things, right? When my wife and I did this exercise before we get married, one of them was she expected that I would lock the door at night. That's a small thing. And I was like, that's silly. Like, any, whoever's up latest should lock the door. And she's, no, I expect you to do it. Oh, okay. So here's how the exercise works. Once you state your expectations and you, they come back together and they haven't shared it, it's so cool. They're going to share this right in front of me. It's like, wow, it's, this is really exciting. And then they'll read their expectations to each other. So the one will read to the other and then they can only respond one of three ways. I said, there's only three responses. The first two are yes responses. The first one is cinch. Yes, I'll do what you expect, and it'll be easy. It'll be a cinch. So, we lock the door every night? Oh, I think that's an irrational request, but it's easy. I'll do it. <laughs> See, that'd be a sign of someone who needs more counseling, but anyhow. <laughs> the second answer you can give is yes. But it won't be easy. It will be really hard. But I will do it. And that's a sweat. So we say, is it a cinch or is it a sweat? So some people will say, well, I expect this. And you say, oh, wow, you have that expectation of me? That actually would be quite hard for me to do. But you know what? I'm going to man up or woman up, and I am going to choose to meet that expectation. You can count on me. It's going to be hard. It's a sweat, but I'm saying yes. And then the third answer is, no way. Just say no. So I expect you to do this. And you say, no, I'm not doing that. Isn't that great to do that before marriage? <laughs> I mean, you can do it after marriage, but it's not as much fun. Anyhow, and so... We, what are we practicing? We're practicing assertiveness. Not assertiveness like in the business, like a lot of in the business world we talk about, like, let's be assertive, let's be aggressive, let's, you know, do sales or whatever. No, no, that's not what it is. Assertiveness in peer relationships is asking or, or, in, or uh, informing about what your desires are without demanding them. Remember? Open-handed. Not closed fist. So it's standing over here and saying, you know what? I'd really love it if you'd lock the door at night, every night. 
I can do that. In fact, I will do that. But what often happens in relationship is the other. I need this. And what happens when you ask a peer in a relationship, I need this, and they say no? Which is a totally legitimate answer, by the way. I have to remind couples all the time, it's okay at this point to say no. When, when someone has an expectation and you're not going to fulfill it, you better tell them now you're not going to. That's healthy. You better have that communication now. You better have that talked out now. You better work that thing out now. But what happens when you desire something and you can't get it? And what if it feels like not getting it is like death itself? Because you need it for life. Because there's something inside of you that tells you if you don't get that, you're not going to be okay. I'll tell you about my own journey a little bit, just a little bit. I've noticed this tendency in me throughout the years. I don't think it's done or finished, or, but there has been some growth. I'll just tell you that. There's been some encouraging growth in my life in this area. Um, I've noticed at different times that I did feel like I needed something from people. Not just wanted. Not just desired. But that I needed something from people. Some sort of um, affirmation or affection or warm response. And when I didn't get it, when I couldn't get it, even if I tried all the tricks of the trade to get it, like manipulation, I became very frustrated. I became very frustrated. And the thing that I didn't notice during those times of great frustration was that my Heavenly Father was there offering His love, affection, and affirmation freely. But I wasn't asking him for it. I was going to a different source to try to get it. Verse 3 says, when you ask, you do not receive. So, so you do not ask, you don't have because you don't ask God. But here's another twist on it. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasure. So let's say you say, okay, I got to ask God. Steve, I got the point. Actually, I got it 15 minutes ago. I don't know why you had to go so long. I am, I'm totally in. I got to ask God to supply the needs in my life that I can't get. I shouldn't be trying to get those from people. I should get that from God. I totally get it. Now, here's the thing. Here's how it'll get twisted in your mind still a little bit further. And you have to watch out for this one too. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's possible that you might go to the right source but still have the wrong, um, the wrong motive. So you go to God. You say, well, I'm at the right address to get this need met in my life. But you're still asking God, not necessarily for God to meet that need, but for God to supply something else to meet your need. So let's say um, you say, I... I, um, like, what, what are things that we might think might meet our needs? I don't know. You, you want to be married. Uh, you want to have a big house. 
Uh, you want to have, uh, you know, well, well cared for retirement. I, I don't know, just big things that we might go to. We might go to God and say, hey, God, I'm here, I'm at, I'm at the right address, and now can you supply the needs in my life by giving me a spouse or a big house or a great retirement? And God's like, oh, you were so close. You showed up at the right location, but you asked for the wrong thing. Here's the thing. I can get tricked in my mind a lot of times about this because I know God has a call in my life. I know God has spoken to me about following him. That's as simple as it is. God's spoken to me about following him, and I've said yes, and I've ever since that initial saying yes to God, I've just been in that track, following God. But you know, sometimes, I'm, in my prayers, I'm talking to God not more about my need for him, I'm talking to God more about my need for other things he could provide. And it's not that those are bad prayers, but sometimes, sometimes, I need a course correction in that. Because sometimes... I'm looking at that thing or that circumstance or that relationship or that opportunity like it is life instead of to God. And so I, even just recently, I mean, boy, I'm, I'm as sinful as the next guy. I just keep coming back to these things where I'm like, oh man, I got off track again. I had to come back to God and say, I was asking for something in my life. I kept coming to you like that was the solution, like that was the thing or the, the, the thing I needed in my life, and actually it was you all along. Even though I was asking you, I, I, was, I was looking more towards, uh, towards this thing to give me life, right? So when you ask, you do not receive because you, don't, you, don't, you ask with wrong motives that you spend what you get on your pleasures. God is not a neat way to get stuff. God is not a neat way to just get all the good things in your life. Like, I don't know, sometimes in business worlds we talk about the ends and the means, right? The means is how you get there, and the end is what you get. Which is God? Is he the means in your life? To give you all the good stuff you want? Or is he the end goal? When I read the Bible, I find out that God is the end. So, it's not just like, hey, man, you need God in your life because then you can have this, this, and this. It's like the message is you can have God in your life. Oh, he might also provide these things, and, and that's true. I've seen God bless people in their lives in big ways, but you get God. That's the end. And God is not some tricky way to get all the other things that you love more than God. That's idolatry. That's making an idol out of something else. Either God is the God of your life or something else will be. And even, our, even when we come in our prayers, sometimes we can be twisted up in the way that we think. Jesus said in uh, John 3, 635, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's nothing wrong with getting married or a big house or a great retirement, but all these things are terrible replacements for God. Because he's the one that can quench that thirst inside of us. Verse 4. This is where it gets real testy here. You adulterous people. So this is really confrontative. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Right? The word adulterous is sort of inflammatory here. People are made for a relationship with God, and if they trade that in for a relationship with something completely different, that's not being faithful to God. Basically, that's where the word adulterous comes in. But what's this thing about friendship with the world? The Bible uses the word world different ways. For example, the most famous verse in the Bible is the one you see at football games. John 3.16, you know, you see it in the end zone. They kick the punt, and then you're like, hey, there's that guy with that sign. And right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Most famous verse at every football game. God so loved the world. So that's one way that the Bible uses the word world, right? God loves the people of planet Earth, the world, right? But then, here's, this is a different way of talking about it, because this seems contradictory with that, right? Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? God tells us again and again to love uh, the people of the world, to, to, to love the people who are around us, love your neighbor, love your enemy even. That pretty much includes everybody. So he's talking here not about individual relationships, but he's talking, when he says he's talking about the word world, he's talking about a system of thought in the world. It's a sort of a, a system of thinking and living life separate from God. So he's saying, you can't love life with me and love life without me. I'm simplifying it way down. For those, I, I always do this. I always have to say that because there's Bible scholars in the room and they have so much education. They're saying, Steve, it's more complex than that. I'm simplifying it. I'm putting, putting the cookies on the low shelf so people can actually eat them, okay? You can't love life without God or life with God and love life without God. Those things are at odds. They're in a conflict. One of them's going to win out in your life. One of them's going to become the dominant theme and the other one's going to become lesser and lesser. Right, Jesus, Jesus uh, uh, talked about this dynamic um, when he talked about money. I'm going to see if I can find that on my page here. Okay, I'll just paraphrase then. You cannot serve both God and money. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you're going to, you know, vice versa. Basically, one of them, you're going to serve one or the other. But, you know, Jesus was using that analogy. He was saying God and money. But it works with almost everything. God and money is a really easy one for all of us because we understand that dynamic because we are pretty driven about money in our society. But lots of other things. You can't have God first and something else be first. Something's going to be first. Something's going to be your main priority and other things are going to take a number after that. So something's going to be number one. So don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? You're going to have to choose. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. So if you, become, if, you, if you become friends with this ungodly worldview that says, uh, you know, life without God is what's going to satisfy me, that won't be complementary with friendship with God. Verse 5. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? Okay, this is another confusing one here a little bit. Um, God has a longing for you and me. He has a longing for you and me to be in relationship with him. And he, puts, he wants to put his spirit inside of us to make us a brand new person in him. He wants his, his actual essence, his spirit to dwell in us. That's what God longs to do. I'm, I'm, again, I'm simplifying 
uh, to help us understand. And verse 6 says, but he gives us more grace. And that's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Here's a contrast. You got your choice between proud and humble. And and those things will lead you down different roads. If you want to live a hard life, definitely choose proud. Choose arrogant and you'll live hard, a hard life, right? Not only will uh, people not like you, find you hard and unbearable to be with, but when you make your existence all about yourself, the Bible says that God himself will oppose you. God himself will actually stand in your way. He won't be there saying, hey, let's just make this work for you. He'll say, no, 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 this is not how you were created to live. This is not what you were made for. On the flip side, you want to live a better life? Humble yourself. Acknowledge that you're not the center of the universe and that God is. Use, um, um, use the language that you have to thank God for how he's made you and how he is. You know what? I had this amazing experience in Honduras. I was at the breakfast table where we were staying, and uh, Pastor Douglas, he said to me, would you pray for the meal? And I'm sitting at the table with English speakers, Spanish speakers, and some people like Doug who can do both. And uh, so I'm going to pray for the meal. And I realize that if I'm praying for the meal in English, then that means that Doug's going to have to translate so that other people at the meal know what I'm saying. And uh, I can pray a long time in English. And through a translator, it's twice as long. And I just thought in the moment, I know enough Spanish to do this. So I said, gracias, señor, amen. And that's about the response I got too. Anyhow, <laughs> then I went straight to church. So I'm preaching at the, at the church that morning. I went straight to church. Chris has gone went to one church to preach. Doug's gone to another church to preach. And I'm at the, the, the home church there to preach. And I come in and it just hits me. I'm in the worship service. Everybody's worshiping God in Spanish. I can pick out a few words on their PowerPoints that sort of stand out to me like, oh yeah, I know that word that word and that's it you know I'm so I'm sometimes just singing along not knowing what the words say and then it just hit me God's given me enough words in Spanish to pray to him I have enough words and so I just began to just say gracias señor gracias señor in the worship service and it became hugely meaningful I just like gracias señor and then I have to add in English for my father who you brought to faith in you. Gracias, Señor. For my mother. Say that today. You can, pray. you can thank the Lord for your mother in two languages. Thank you, Lord, for my mother. Gracias, Señor. What is it? Mamma mia or something? I don't know what the end is. <laughs> really, I didn't learn much. But I learned enough to pray. And it became so meaningful. So I was praying again. Gracias, Señor. Gracias, Señor. For all the good things in my life. And I realized, you don't have to have a huge vocabulary to pray. You say, I don't know how to pray in English. It's just one word stuff you got to start with. Uh, my friend Rod Barks talking about premarital counseling. One of the things he teaches couples to do, another great exercise, is to pray using three words. Sorry, thank you, please. 
Sorry, thank you, please. He says, couples, go off. He sends them off. I've done this before with couples too. Go off and say, I just want you to do three things in prayer. If you've never prayed together before, first say sorry to God for something you, uh, you need to confess and get right with him. And then say thank you for something in your life. And then please ask him for something. Th that'll give you a simple blueprint. So he sends people off who've never prayed together and they do this little blueprint and they come back and say, we prayed together for the first time. Just like I was like, I prayed in Spanish for the first time. <laughs> it's awesome. It's really simple. But just express that to God. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the ones who are humble. The ones who say, God, thank you, you gave me my life. Thank you for my mother. Thank you that through her I have life. Thank you that I can think or speak my response to you because of what you've done. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does the devil have to do this, with this? Well, we always talk about the devil in terms of temptation and tempting us to sin. And the big one here is tempting us to sin, to pursue desires other than God, to make them our life, right? He will, he'll, he'll say to you, this will make you happy. It'll make you feel alive. I think of that popular song on the radio. Everything that kills me makes me feel alive. If you say it backwards, it's basically saying, I want to feel alive, but it's killing me. God can make you feel alive and not kill you. Oh, I mean, he'll kill the parts of you that are separating you from him. God's great at killing sin in our lives in a great way. But he'll make you alive without the destruction that comes with all those other things we pursue. So come near to God and he will come near to you. What a promise. What a promise. So many times I've run into people who fear to come near to God. And I think uh, some of that's healthy. Some of that's healthy. Sometimes they understand at least how big and, and the reality of who God is, and they're actually thinking about him appropriately, God with a capital G, not sort of taming him down to being something small. So I appreciate that aspect of it, but I'm so excited to see to, for them to understand God's grace. So excited for them to understand God's love for them, uh, God, how God went so out of his way to make it possible for them to have relationship uh, with him. And so when people say, I, I, I'm afraid to come and approach God, I, I fear his rejection, then it's a great time to just talk about Jesus and how Jesus made it possible for all of us not to be rejected by God, but to be accepted because Jesus took our rejection. Jesus went to the cross took the sins of the world upon him, and he cries out this terrible cry at one point on the cross when he's in, in physical agony, he's also in spiritual agony. Father, why have you forsaken me? See, sin either separates you from God or God will separate you from sin. And I've had plenty of sin in my life, plenty of times where I've made the whole world about me. I've, I've tried to... Uh, gain fulfillment, get life, not pursuing God and his endless spring of living water, but trying to make my own little puddle and get satisfaction out of that. I've said by my actions that God's not worthy. I've said by my actions that God's not good. I've said by my actions that I can do this on my own and that I don't need God. But along the way, I've come to the realization that I do need God, that he is good, 
that he does love me and that he is that if his that what Jesus did makes it possible for me to fully embrace God and come into relationship with him that that is a miracle that is a gift of grace that I don't deserve and that I uh, I'd be a fool not to accept and so I've come to that point that all of us we would hope we'd come to after our lifetime of looking for love in all the wrong places. Verse 10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. And he will lift you up. He will lift you up. He will lift you up. So we don't, we don't have to. This is, I'm just ending with this. But we don't have to try to find life in all those other sources. We don't have to go on all those fruitless, endless pursuits to try to satisfy that gnawing hunger within ourselves. It's, it's, it's satisfied in Jesus. It's quenched in Jesus. In relationship with God, we discover that we are loved, we're accepted, we belong. We understand our significance. Our life gains meaning. All of those things come together in relationship with Jesus. And so we can take what is a good desire to have all those things and instead of taking it to somebody else who, can, who, who can't fulfill that desire and instead of taking it to someone else who will maybe block that goal, we can take it to one who says, I will lift you up. Come unto me. And I'll lift you up. Let's stand this morning.